Lord, this morning we do desire that uh, your word speak clearly and loudly to us as we look into it, and that it may uh, move us, motivate us, encourage us, and as Bill encouraged last week, that we may be able to apply it in uh, particular situations as your word directs us, and that we would be sensitive to you and to your Holy Spirit, that as we see things in your word, that we may quickly obey them and respond to them and allow them to transform us. We just praise you for just the things that we've discussed and already uh, looked at and spoken of in terms of friendships here in this group and new friendships as they're developing. We desire to continually reflect you and to uh, continually be transformed into your image. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the constant themes in the passage that we've been looking at, but not just Romans, kind of a constant theme throughout the Bible. In fact, this is probably one of the areas that we can apply even before we get into this passage, because we've already seen the principle spoken of by Paul. But the issue of the old nature the sinful nature and its uh, constant tendency towards decline and departure from the Lord. The nation of Israel is a very definite uh, illustration throughout the Old Testament. You see cycles of sin over and over and over. And we're going to see a little bit of that. I'm going to bring that out. I've mentioned that before in other studies, but we'll look at it because it's a major part of what we're looking at in Romans chapter 10. And the plan is to get through verse 21. We'll review a little bit of verse 16 where we've left off and eventually get to verse 21 where we see this persistent disbelief. But uh, lest we think that, oh, that's true of Israel, I think the way that we can apply this is to realize in the old nature, this is our tendency. We, we tend to disbelieve rather than uh, eagerly and joyfully and consistently believe. There's the tendency of decline in the spiritual walk. So we're going to see that vivid in the nation of Israel. And that's what Paul is describing in the time frame that he writes when he writes to the uh, church at Rome, there were believers of like nature, people that had the old nature as well and had the same tendency. And he's bringing home to them the illustration of the nation of Israel, explaining something of their situation in terms of their relationship to God. So we're looking at God being vindicated, his righteousness in how he is dealing with the nation of Israel. We've gone over this chart several times, 9, 1 through 29, where God has sovereignly worked in Israel all the way back in the beginning of the nation and has continually worked. And in the midst of that sovereign choosing, these are his people, the nation of Israel. But because they have rejected the Messiah, they are presently under discipline. We could call it a rejection in, uh, in a certain sense. 
And that's described in chapter 9, verse 30, through the end of chapter 10. We're going to finish chapter 10 today. But we'll see next time we get into Romans that that rejection is not a total, nor is it a permanent rejection. But in fact, there's a future restoration in view for the nation of Israel. So those are kind of the highlights of this major section we're looking in. And let me illustrate it in a, in a more, maybe a personal way, I guess, or a family way. When a child, and all of you have gone through these, either through your own personal experience, years and years ago, right? And or as you've raised children, and some of you now grandchildren, you know that discipline is a very necessary part of child rearing. And those of you that have basketball teams and ice hockey teams right now are doing this. And when the child is uh, disciplined, what is the feeling that they have? In other words, what what are some of the thoughts that go through their minds? Well, I think I've captured in the in the title here. You don't love me anymore. Why are you doing this to me? All these thoughts. Stop. Don't discipline. It wasn't that bad or whatever. So I think this kind of illustrates what we have in chapters 9 through 11. And if I'll carry this analogy through, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 through 29, it's like a father saying to that son, you are my son and always will be. In other words, Israel is God's chosen people and always will be. He doesn't go back on his covenants. He doesn't go back on his promises. And just like a son in a family is not cast out, but he may undergo some discipline. And in the midst of that, he says, you are my son and always will be, but I have to do what I know is best. And what is best is not only the discipline of this one child, but uh, perhaps in the midst of discipline, he may be blessing another child. He may be giving the blessings of the family and goodness and fellowship to another, maybe a younger child that the, the, the son is observing. So that's kind of an illustration, you might say, of uh, the first part of chapters 9 through 11. And chapter 10, and actually the last part of chapter 9, beginning verse 31 to the end of chapter 10, it emphasizes the perspective from the child. You are being disciplined because you deserve it. And Paul is laying out how Israel deserves all of the discipline that God is bringing upon them. And in the midst of it, it's difficult. As the child goes through the discipline, it is unpleasant. But the discipline is intended to not only teach lessons, but to move the child to, to certain changes and uh, certain responses. And that's what chapter 11 describes, that God is going to work sovereignly in the nation of Israel to bring about changes that'll result in restoration to fellowship with uh, the God that called them initially all the way back, beginning with Abraham. So in terms of this illustration, the child, when you respond, the father will say, when you respond rightly, I will restore you to fellowship. You will be re-established in terms of full blessing within the family. But in the meantime, I've got to take away your cell phone. I've got to 
restrict you to your room. I've got to do all the things that uh, will teach the lessons that you need to learn. So maybe that might bring it a little closer to home, the passages that we're looking at, and help you understand from the broad perspective what God is doing with the nation of Israel. And from that, Israel is God's chosen people. They don't cease to be God's chosen people. They don't lose all of the promises of the Old Testament. God doesn't violate his covenants. His covenants stand, and they stand forever, so Israel remains as God's chosen people. But in uh, the time frame, because Israel has rejected her Messiah, this good news, this gospel, is going out to others, going out to the Gentiles, the most hated amongst the people of Israel, and that raises some issues and some questions that Paul answers in chapters 9 through 11. And the third thing is he's setting Israel aside on a temporary basis. And the portion that we're looking at, the end of chapter 9, beginning in verse 30 to the end of chapter 10, lays out the major reasons. So in the outline here, we've already looked at the past sovereign election of Israel. Chapter 9, verses 1 through verse 29 where God has worked sovereignly to bring unbelievers into a saving relationship with himself. Now, everything is national. Everything is corporate in uh, dealing with the nation of Israel. But uh, there's also within that individual responses as well. Also, on a national basis, there's a present situation of the first century after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, after the rejection of the Messiah. There's a present national rejection. That's chapter 9, verse 30 to the end of the chapter we're looking at. And in that, we can divide that beginning in chapter 9, verse 30. One of the main reasons is Israel has perverted the way of righteousness, the way of attaining righteousness, the way of attaining a relationship, not only corporately, but uh, broad-based in terms of the majority of the Jewish people. They have attempted to establish a self-righteous approach. So we looked at that all the way through chapter 10, verse 13. We're in the last part. The second major reason that uh, Israel is set aside is because they have a persistent disbelief of a message that God has sent to them. The message has been clear. The message has been sent, and we're describing describing some of those aspects, even in the passage we're looking at today. So we've already seen the potential of the preaching. In other words, the way of righteousness has been made clear. God has sent people to Israel throughout the Old Testament, but particularly in the first century, God has sent prophets, people that know the Lord, people that have come into a saving relationship. So the gospel message, the good news has been preached and it has been heard, and it is up to Israel to not only concentrate on it and know it, but to believe it. But unfortunately, in the first century, they disbelieved it. So there's the potential of the, the, the preaching, and we went through all of that. And in chapter 10, verse 16, I'll give you a little quick review of it, and then we'll get into verse 18, the focus of what we'll look at today. That preaching was disbelieved, 16 and 17. 
So in chapter 16, however, they, referring to uh, corporate Israel, Israel in general, they did not all heed the good news. So in general, they rejected that message. And lest they question it, we saw last time that Paul is now going to quote from a very important passage, Isaiah 52, and he's quoting uh, actually verse 10, but we looked at the context of 7 through 10. That context is Isaiah predicting that there will come. In fact, he's looking way ahead because the nation of Israel has not gone into captivity yet in Babylon, but eventually they will come out of Babylon and those that bring the message concerning the end of the Babylonian captivity, the end of the exile and the end of the captivity, that is good news. And in the passage in Isaiah 52, it sets the stage to prepare for the coming of the Messiah, prepare for the Messiah. And you can look back and reflect on Israel's history after Isaiah, after the Babylonian captivity, after the exile, there was a period of time where Israel was brought back to the land. So the news, the good news of the end of the Babylonian captivity and the coming salvation for all. This is also foretold in Isaiah, centered on a Messiah. But we also have verse 53, and that's what he's quoting in uh, verse 16, that message is disbelieved. In other words, the message concerning Messiah, and he's going to go into detail and describe the uh, essentially the crucifixion of the Messiah in great detail, how Israel has rejected her Messiah and essentially disbelieved the message. So that's verse 1 of Isaiah 53 that introduces that description of the rejection of the Messiah. Isaiah says, Isaiah 53:1, Lord, who has believed our report? That report concerning the Messiah and concerning the good news coming out of Babylon, who has believed it? Well, essentially the nation of Israel has rejected that good news. They did not heed that good news and the evidence that he uses, or you might even say the proof comes out of uh, the book of Isaiah. So now he's going to, in verse 17, summarize much of what he's already talked about and somewhat bring it together here. And then he's going to uh, go into verse 18 and prove the situation of Israel from uh, other passages in the Old Testament. And he begins. Uh, go ahead. Got a question on 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, Okay, so Isaiah is prophesying ahead of the Babylonian uh, disbursement. disbursement. Uh, so what generation didn't believe the good news? I mean, he's, he's talking about that um, they, they did not, like in the past tense, but he's talking about something that's future. Mm -hmm. Who didn't believe the good news? Well... Specifically, Paul is using it to demonstrate what's going on in the first century. So he's talking about the first century. But in Isaiah's time, the nation of Israel, Isaiah is bringing good news. If they will repent and believe on the coming of Messiah, 
and abandon their idolatry, they can avert a coming judgment. So Isaiah is kind of mixing prophetic scriptures of what's going to happen, but I think he's doing that uh, with the clear warning that there's also available the message of good news, the, the message of repentance. So I think it's applicable to the time of Isaiah, and it's also applicable after that to any generation that would read Isaiah, including the first century. I don't know if that clarifies it for you. Well, I, that's that's interesting. That it's, uh, the, the application is, I guess, interesting uh, from that point forward to every generation, I guess. As Scripture is, because Scripture is inspired. So I think Isaiah is writing a message to his generation in the hopes that they can avert the Babylonian captivity. Okay. And after Isaiah, there were some times of repentance, and there were some times of renewal under some of the following kings, Hezekiah and others. But ultimately, there's also within it the prophecy that, the nation would ultimately be destroyed and there would be judgment. Okay. Make sense? Anything to add to that, Nate? Nate, feel free at any time to just blurt out. Nate's the uh, the expert in Romans. I'm just learning. Nothing to add. <laughs> I'm simply learning week by week. Okay, great. So in verse 17, now he's going to summarize So faith, giving a general principle that is, here's a general principle that is applicable whenever. Isaiah's day, before Isaiah, all the way to Adam, today, first century. So faith comes from hearing. We uh, commented on that. Faith is not kind of this nebulous, nondescript, hard-to-define concept. Biblical faith has an object. In other words, biblical faith has the object of truth. It it doesn't change, but it can take different uh, aspects or different forms in different time frames. In the Old Testament, faith in what God has promised concerning a coming Messiah. We look back at the arrival of Messiah, the incarnation, and we believe on what The New Testament tells us of what Messiah accomplished on our behalf. So faith has content. Faith is not faith in faith or just faith, but faith comes from hearing the message, the good news that Paul has already developed. So it has to, it has content and uh, hearing by the word of Christ. So faith is based on the word of Christ. And in this context, it's the rhema, the spoken word, uh, the emphasis on the delivering of the gospel message, and perhaps implying that that message is going to come through human uh, messengers. In fact, that's kind of the theme that he's talked about in this whole passage. So the hearing Uh, of the word. Yeah, Ray, also on this, I've been thinking about this since your last lesson, I uh, uh, I've been thinking about this ten uh, eight, you know. But what does it say that the the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, mm-hmm. and is the word of faith? Um, and uh, the word of faith that he's talking about back in Deuteronomy thirty 
has to do with obey, obeying the law, actually. Yes. Uh, and and here it's it's got a different it's different content, it seems. Yes. But it it does make me think about Hebrews chapter eleven verse six that he who comes to God uh, must believe that he is, um, and uh, it and for those who seek him, they're rewarded. And he applies that to all the people in that chapter 11, uh, which include even Rahab, a Gentile, uh, who would not have had all this information that we're going through here in Romans 9 concerning Israel specifically. And so you can kind of see that the there is an object of faith, but it, it seems the content is moving, it seems like, with history. Yeah, it uh, varies depending on the time frame. The essence, though, the heart of it does not change. It, it's more the, uh, I could even say, the dispensational time frame with respect to the, the cross and with respect to the revelation that God has revealed. But, but it's the word that we believe in, the word that God has revealed. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I was thinking about Rahab in particular. Uh, in that list of uh, chapter of Hebrews eleven, mm-hmm. uh, that yeah, you know we don't know it that she would have known anything, you know about uh, some of the things that we take for granted, like going back to Genesis three fifteen and uh, and realizing that the the revelation of of the Messiah began back there, right? But the content of her faith uh, probably didn't include that. Well, we don't know that. The, I would assume that the spies gave her enough revelation that is not recorded in the book of Joshua. We don't, in fact, we don't know what she believed. There's, there's virtually no content in terms of knowing what she believed. But I would assume that she had all of the word, that all of the revelation that she needed to bring her into a saving relationship. And I think that's true at any point in time. The record that we have, the Bible description of these events, don't give us all that detail. Yeah, and I think the content of what you just said, though, I think is important because uh, she, the the content of what she would perhaps believed that would have been effect, effective for her would not have been the same as what Joshua understood, for example. Well, I think. Josh, well, after Joshua, yeah, there's further revelation. But the point I'm making is we don't have all the details in Scripture of what people believed, but we can assume because of the consistency and the flow of Scripture and progress of revelation that she would have perhaps known. She would have known about sin. She would have known about a coming Messiah. She would have known that she would have to uh, trust in that Messiah and uh, that's not in the book of Joshua. It doesn't tell us that. But because of what we know from the New Testament, we would assume that she had all of the data that she needed in order to uh, receive the salvation that the scriptures later on, like the Hebrews passage, looks back upon and uh, tells us that uh, she was a believer. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Well, I want to talk to you about that some other time. Okay. Okay. 
So hearing by the word of Christ, so this brings it to the first century, the revelation that Christ brings and the apostles are delivering and the good news. Faith is based on it in this time frame, in in the time of the church age, and uh, that's the content that we believe in. Now, before I get into the next part, in fact, maybe I should have shown the outline here, but we're going to look that Paul is now going to prove the disbelief beginning in verse 18. But let me introduce it by reminding you of this pattern of sin or these cycles of sin that you can see all the way going back to Genesis, all the way back to Genesis 3, actually. And in all of the major events of the Old Testament, you see these cycles of sin where God works a work of grace. And there's literally hundreds of examples on a small scale. There's examples on the macro scale or the large scale in terms of God's progress of revelation throughout the the dealings with mankind. You see it with the Genesis flood where God uh, saved a family. And then you see the next stage. You see it with Adam and Eve. I should have started with Adam and Eve, where God offers redemption for the very first time. And you see a response. But after a work of grace, we see the, the, the beginning of sin having its corrupting effects. Sin begins its corrupting effects. You see that in the next generation with Adam. You see that even in the life of Noah at the end of chapter 9. But then you have some silence, and then you have another incident. And then you see that in terms of the culminating of that at Babel. And you see that throughout. And certainly we have seen this in uh, the nation of Israel. Beginning with the call of Abraham, that's a work of God, work of grace, the covenant that God enters into with Abraham and all of the promises and predictions of that covenant. But then you see a degeneration even within the family. And if you trace through all of the history of the nation of Israel, you see that sin continues to corrupt. And I've used the illustration of the second law of thermodynamics on a physical level. I think we can learn some spiritual lessons from it. The second law is an irreversible tendency in the natural realm of everything to unwind. Scientists observe this everywhere in the universe. When we were in Romans 8, I tried to show that that came about as a result of the fall of man, beginning in verse 18, 19, and 20 through 23 there. Paul is giving all of the parameters of the second law. In fact, that was the topic that I gave at the last Creation Science Fellowship meeting, giving the parameters of the second law, this irreversible tendency to unwind. Every science is affected, biology, astrophysics, zoology, whatever. You can see this principle or this law, you might say, of science. It's a movement from organization to disorganization. And by the way, this law by itself disproves the concept of evolution, so you can use it. And it's also the law of decay, particularly in biological systems. You see decay, degeneration, and uh, things related to death. 
And there are several passages that we could look at. And the passage, Romans 8, 20 through 22, is probably one of the clearest in the New Testament that we've looked at before. Similarly, there's a second law, and we could describe it a second law of spiritual dynamics, if you would, just using the analogy. And you see this illustrated in the nation of Israel. The application to draw from this is it still exists within us as long as we have a sin nature. The sin nature is under this second law of spiritual dynamics. It's an irreversible tendency to sin. Irreversible. Now that pertains to the old nature. You can't reform it. Remember we were in chapter 7. You can't reform it by trying to obey the law. You can't reform it by self-will. It's an irreversible tendency to sin. It's vividly illustrated in the nation of Israel. What we need is something to counteract that, that irreversible tendency, and that's what we have in Christ. It's a movement from spiritual health back to spiritual bondage. Second law of spiritual dynamics it's the law, Paul describes it as the law of sin and death. And he uses that phrase in Romans chapter 7. So we see it very vividly illustrated in the nation of Israel. So we need to be on guard. The application again to draw is unless we are continually adding, you might say, from outside of us, doesn't come from willpower, doesn't come from a set of rules. It comes as a result of the Holy Spirit renewing our thinking and us applying all of what Bill was trying to emphasize last week. Applying biblical scriptures to our life, we need that input to counteract the law of sin and death. That's Romans 8. And that is what was missing in the nation of Israel. So now he's going to prove that disbelief. And we're going to see where that leads as well. So beginning in verse 18, but I say, and he's kind of reviewing a little bit of some of what he's already talked about. Remember, he talked about God sending messengers, prophets to the nation of Israel. So they, they delivered a message. So he goes back. Surely they did not, they never heard. Some of them missed the message. They didn't hear it, have they? Now he frames it with a question that expects a negative answer, and he's going to answer the question with a proof from the Old Testament. And he says, indeed, they have. So he answers his own question, and in that, Indeed, they have. Now he's going to quote out of the Old Testament. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their, their words to the ends of the world. The interesting thing here is the passage that he quotes. And I think we touched on it last time. Do you remember we, we mentioned that he's talking about Psalm 19, verse 4, and, and it's in the context uh, verse 4 of general revelation, verses 1 through 6, where he's talking about the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament speak of uh, what God has revealed to mankind. So astrophysics reveals. This is general revelation. 
Now, the problem that is introduced here is we know from many other passages, general revelation is adequate only to uh, to condemn. In other words, to make man accountable. We saw that in Romans chapter 1. General revelation is not adequate to bring salvation. You need uh, special revelation. Now, the psalm does in verse 17 through 14. We won't look it up. But he does focus on special revelation, the word of God. And in fact, in that passage, we have one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture on the inerrancy of Scripture. I'll let you look that up on your own. Where God, God's word is perfect. It's pure. All of the descriptive phrases that are used in that passage indicating that uh, there's, there's no error. There's no mistakes in God's special revelation. But the the passage that uh, Paul quotes here is this passage in verse 4 that refers, when it says their voice, uh, it refers to the the voice of general revelation. So why does he do that? Because that's not the focus of what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that special revelation, the word of Christ that we just looked at in that uh, prior verse before. Well, we have a little bit of a difficulty, but I think what Paul is doing is he's applying a passage that certainly applies to general revelation, but that same principle applies to special revelation. And I think more than uh, saying this is a fulfillment of uh, Psalm 19.4, I think he's applying it to the first century situation and saying, just as general revelation is universally broadcast, no one can miss it. It is everywhere. The creation cries out in this general universal way, so also by way of analogy or by way of uh, application, I think what he's saying, there's this universal aspect in terms of the gospel message being at least available and going out, and the nation of Israel has, in fact, heard it. There is no excuse. They have the law. They, they read it. Some of them memorize it. Some of them uh, know it in some detail. So they have heard it has gone out on a universal basis. So there's this special revelation that is universally heard. So we've been seeing throughout this failure of the nation of Israel to respond to that special revelation. First of all, we saw their failure in their pursuit of righteousness, failure to know God himself, focused on the perfections of God, failure to realize the purpose of the law, that it ends in Christ, that's all first century, failure to apply the principle of faith rather than self-effort and works, failure to realize that God has a broad plan, a plentitudious plan, is that a word? I think I invented one. Uh, in other words, a word that it goes beyond Israel, goes on even to the Gentiles. So it, there's a plentitude of its plan. And then now we're seeing that they have a failure to understand the prophecies of Scripture. That's verses 14 through 21. And he's going to prove that, the proof of their disbelief. 
We saw the perception of Israel. It's been universally revealed, you might say, or distributed to the nation of Israel. And now he's going to prove it from the law. For I say, surely Israel, surely Israel did not know. Now he emphasizes they heard because the the gospel has been uh, broadly spread. And you might think in terms of the book of Acts, by the time Romans has been written, the gospel message has gone out essentially throughout the entire Roman Empire. So the gospel message was available. Romans was written at the end of the third missionary journey. So Paul has gone through virtually all of his missionary journeys. So the gospel has gone out. So the gospel has spread, but now the issue, surely Israel does not know. Did they not understand it? Was it not clear? Did not God make it evident to them? Well, he's going to give another proof here. And the proof comes from Moses, or you might say from the law. And we're going to see later on that it's not only from the law, but also from the prophets. And he goes to a passage. He's looked at Psalm 4. And now he's going to go to Deuteronomy 32, 21, which is a very interesting passage that goes all the way back to the time of Moses before Israel is even a nation. Remember, we've looked at Deuteronomy before. We looked at Deuteronomy 28 and 29 and 30, where he gives an outline of their entire history. He gives another little glimpse of their history in uh, Deuteronomy 32. This is a farewell address. Just before Moses dies, this is at the end of the life of Moses, just on the verge of Joshua taking the children of Israel into the land. And in this farewell address, he predicts what's taking place in the first century. In fact, he's predicting what's going to take place kind of even before that in terms of being destroyed as a nation. I will make you, and this is, I think, the point that Paul is making, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. What is he referring to there? The Gentiles. He's talking about the Gentiles, that that is not a nation. In other words, that that is not the nation, the special nation. He's referring to Gentiles here, and he's going to make them jealous. So he's predicting a turning to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what's taking place in the first century. Would somebody look up 17, Acts 17, 2 through 11? And while you're looking that one up, he's going to develop this a little bit further in chapter 11. And notice particularly verse 11. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. He's talking about the nation of Israel. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, and notice very specifically, to fulfill this passage that Moses even predicted, to make them jealous. An interesting concept. God is going to work amongst a people that are not part of the, the covenant directly, it includes them indirectly, and God is going to use them and work a miraculous work within them 
such that when the nation of Israel sees that, it's going to bring feelings of jealousy. How can God work with this people? And why not us? We're his chosen people. What is God doing here? And if that's not clear, we have another passage in chapter 11. If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. So the whole purpose of turning to the Gentiles, or one of the purposes, is that the nation of Israel might see and become jealous and desire. Well, I want the same thing. I want that blessing. Does anyone have Acts 17? We have another example where a word, it's not the identical word that we have here. In fact, the identical word here only occurs four times, three of them in this context, one of them in the passage we're looking at in chapter 10, verse 19, two of them in chapter 11, verse 11 and 14, and then there's another one in in 1 Corinthians, but a form of the same word group, 17, 2 through uh, 5. David, you got it? I've got it. 17, 2 through 5? Yep. And Paul, as his manner was, went into them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Now, this is the, the, the people in Thessalonica. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, that this Jesus, whom I preached unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, and a great multitude and of the chief women, not a few. So many responded. These are Gentiles. Many Gentiles are responding. And notice how the Jews respond to the response of the Gentiles. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Okay, that's the typical Jewish response, not only in the first century, but throughout their history, when God deals with those like Gentiles, like he's talking about here. That is predicted by Moses all the way back in Deuteronomy. And then we have synonymous parallelism. In other words, the same thought using different words. This is Hebrew poetry, typical Hebrew poetry. And it refers to the same thing by a nation without understanding, will I anger? Now he's angering uh, Jewish people. You have the context there, synonymous parallelism. So he's going to use Gentiles. That's the whole idea here. So we have these cycles of sin. God works a work of grace. And then you have the corrupting effects of sin. And sin is going to work its effects. God patiently endures sin until it reaches its full corruption. And that is where the nation of Israel was before the Babylonian captivity and where the nation is in the first century in the book of Acts, where the Messiah has already been crucified, and what awaits is the the fourth cycle where God intervenes to judge and to save. And you see this cycle throughout the Bible, and the children of Israel saw it in their history, and I think Paul is bringing it out here in that Israel has rejected the Messiah, And he's hoping that there's still time for them to repent. But shortly, 
in 70 AD, there's going to come an intervention. And it's actually an intervention of grace, but it's also an intervention of judgment, where God is now initiating a complete break from the Old Testament and a a working in a new entity that we know of as the church. So we have a proof from the law, and now he's going to give us a proof from the prophets. So the passage goes on, same sentence, and Isaiah, one of the prophets, is very bold. And what does he say? Now this quote comes out of the uh, passage, Isaiah 65, 1, where it refers even to the Gentiles. And again, he's referring, I was found by those who did not seek me, Who did not seek him? Gentiles are not interested in spiritual things. Gentiles are dogs. Gentiles don't care about revelation. Uh, Gentiles persecute God's people. They could care less. And yet those are the people that in the first century found him. And not only that, but what Paul, I think, is implying here, since even those who did not seek him found him, if the Gentiles can find him, Should not those who are chosen find him? Shouldn't Jews find him as well? And I think that's the thrust. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Again, you have synonymous parallelism. I was found by those who did not seek me. Then we have the same idea again. I became manifest to those who did not seek for me. And this should stimulate them as the prior passage to jealousy, to stimulate within them a desire to know. But the outcome, in verse 21, we have Paul's conclusion. And uh, But as for Israel, and now he's going to give a final quote. And now this quote goes to the next verse in Isaiah. But as for Israel, in other words, 65.2, we have Paul's conclusion. It's not as a result of anything in God. God is willing. In fact, the passage emphasizes the welcoming arms of the Lord and the continuousness of it. All day long, I have stretched out my hands. So we have kind of a picture of God pictured like a mother welcoming and and drawing a child to himself. It's continually, he's continually offering the good news, continuous. It's a relentless, this outstretched arms. This is a picture of grace, picture of love, uh, a welcoming picture, inviting intimacy, inviting people to enter into that relationship. It's also, if you come into those arms, you'll, you'll find security and you'll find uh, fulfillment. So the passage, if we had more time, we're running out here. We could look at the Matthew passage, Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, where this was continually an offer of the Lord Jesus Christ in his, in his ministry, where he offers rest and fulfillment, Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. And we also see a summary at the end of the ministry of Christ, where in uh, verse 23, 33 through 43, is that correct? I'll have to check that, where we have a final invitation to embrace him. And we also have the introduction to the Olivet Discourse, where Israel is going to reject him.
And even in the book of Revelation, we have a final call to all of humanity, Revelation 22, 17, to come. So the efforts of Christ are there, but it's unfortunately to a disobedient and obstinate people. Kind of depressing, uh, kind of sad that God's chosen people that has all of the promises, all of the privileges, all that God desires to offer humanity has refused it, disobedient. And rather than to close on a totally negative light here, let me just add a little bit of lightness to it here. Notice it's in a Jewish context, the Jewish flag there. So we have three Jews here, and the cartoon says he doesn't want anyone to accuse him of being stiff-necked, which is a characteristic of the nation of Israel throughout their history. Just a little bit levity there. Another cartoon. Couple here on the couch watching program here. Four centers compete, and here's the next program that's coming up. Four centers compete to incur the wrath of Yahweh on Old Testament idol. Kind of an allusion to what you expect from the Old Testament. Uh, Just kind of concluding here, let me just uh, read uh, what it's like to be stiff-necked. And this comes from Donald Gray Barnhouse, who kind of surveyed through Isaiah, since Isaiah is quoted here, the last passage that's quoted. He goes through and pulls out what it means to be stiff-necked, Isaiah uses all these different phrases to describe it. It's a sinful and hypocritical attitude. So the nation of Israel is a sinful and hypocritical nation. It's a people laden with iniquity. It's a rebellious group of sons. They are offspring of evildoers. They're corruptors. They're forsaken of the Lord. They're provokers of the Holy One of Israel. God despisers, companions of thieves, wicked, wanton. These all come out of Isaiah. They're rotten. They're drunken. They're bribe givers. They're bribe takers. They're proud. They're arrogant, makers of evil laws, godless, oppressors, treacherous, treacherous dealers, proud drunkards, drunkards, filthy, scornful men. And the list actually goes on. That's what it means to be stiff-necked. And that's what Isaiah alone describes. You can probably pick out some other descriptive phrases in other parts of the Old Testament. It's a picture of depravity. And sadly, that's the picture of the nation of Israel. But uh, next time we get into the book of Romans, we'll see that there's, in spite of that dreadful description, there's a future restoration of Israel, and we have a positive turn in chapter 11, and we'll see that Israel's rejection is not total. So a concluding thought before we go into prayer. There are Jewish people that live today in our culture. Some of you have contact with them. I I do myself. And you need to keep in mind the background. We've talked a, a lot about that Jewish people view us with a lot of suspicion. They view us from a background of the church that has persecuted Jewish people throughout the church age, essentially. And they're the recipients of persecution to this day. 
in some cases, even by believers. So uh, we need to use a lot of wisdom in sharing the gospel with Jewish people because immediately they're not going to listen. I think what they need to see, first of all, they need to see a living Christian and a visible Christian life. And once they see that, then it might open up a door where we might give a verbal witness. Now, if you have an opportunity to share verbally, I think you take it, but you use wisdom. Don't barge in and share the gospel because more than likely walls have already been put up. But we should pray for them and live a Christian life and love them so that the doors can uh, become opened. Any comments? We're out of time here and we need to close things out here. We did complete chapter 10, a little bit hurriedly at the end there. Any comments? Everybody good? Who wants to close for us then? Father, we thank you, we praise you, we exalt your holy name that despite despite the discipline that you hand out to our rebellion, discipline which is necessary because you are a holy God, despite our rebellion, you continue to hold your arms out to us, you continue, you have continued throughout the ages to invite humanity to come and to join you in the work that you are doing. Father, if that is not grace, I don't know what is. And so we rejoice in your goodness. We rejoice that until we stand before you, we have opportunity to repent of our wickedness, of our heedlessness before you, and we have opportunity to turn and to serve you. Thank you, Father, for being such an incredibly gracious, good enduring God. We give you praise and honor and glory. In the name of your Son, amen. Amen. Thank you, Mary Lee. Today, we are privileged to hear from uh, Linda. Linda's going to introduce herself. And I hope... (laughs) My thoughts exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The dog is excited at least. Oh, at least somebody is. (laughs) So, Linda, I hope she tells of her uh, background in uh, liberal thought and the progress that uh, brought her to where she's at today. So, Linda. That's that's a fantasy, Ray. (laughs) That's a fantasy. The latter part. It's not liberal thought. But anyway... um, I'm Linda Vick, and um, I was born Linda Comiskey, nice Irish girl. Anyway, uh, I wasn't always like this. <laughs> you know, the perfect person, <laughs> friendly, inviting, smiley. Um, so I had to write this out because with all the missionaries and blah, 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 I feel like, um, well, my testimony isn't exactly uh encouraging to that cause probably but uh got this, linda what got this <laughs> but um we say no matter how far down we have gone there's uh god can use us to benefit others but anyway i just wrote it down so i wasn't like this so many years were taken up by obsessive compulsive disorder and 
many more years in recovery from it. Fortunately, what I did was mathematics and playing the violin. I know I could have been sorting bobby pins or turning on lights. At 43, I found the spiritual dis discipline of the 12 steps that launched me to freedom. It began in a funny way. I went to an Adult Children of Alcoholics ACA meeting where they pass out at the beginning readings for people to read. I got one, but then I got really scared and I walked out. When I got to the car to leave, I had the reading they'd given me called The Solution. I said, I can't leave, I have the solution. And it was, it was in that meeting. Several months later, I was driving around lost with yet another addict friend. I'm not an uh, addict, I'm a, you know. Anyway, I said, I said to myself, to God, something, what is the way out of all this addiction? And just then, we pulled into a driveway to turn around, and there was a sign that said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Are your sins covered by the blood of Christ? I mean, that was like an immediate baba answer. So that that started kind of uh, got me open like wham. Then in, in San Diego, um, I went to church, uh, and I there I met Dennis, and then we got married in 1991. He was 47, and I was no, I, I was 47, and he was 34. Still in that. With that wonderful man, I was unsettled, anxious. And though a Christian, I was too scared to open the Bible. I didn't believe it anyway. Then Sharon G. at Grace Church had enrolled in Ray's class, which I, of course, poo-pooed, <laughs> until she invited Ray to our small group to talk about creation. Ah, oh, man, Dennis made me go. My attitude was, I have to listen to these right-wing Republicans spout some nonsense. <laughs> but I got there, and darn, it all made sense. It was true. Everything about Christianity, like, lined up. And I totally believed, like, in that moment. It was amazing, given my skeptical attitude. Um, I did have one more bout in the nuthouse. <laughs> more later. Uh uh, after that, the fog started to clear. I went to Bible study with precepts. I went to Ray's class. Since then, since whenever it was, 15 years or something, I worked the steps. It all started to fit together. Dennis put up with me all, all of these control freak anxious years. Then from age 77, 70 to 75, I was perfect. By oh my gosh, sober-minded, clear-headed, in shape, nothing hurt, but at 75 hit, and my body has started to break. It's still, I'm still in process, heading home. So that is the strange tale of Linda Comiskey. Now I'm riding on the exciting wave of flux and trusting God. So be it. Excellent, excellent. Linda, I love you. <laughs> oh, thank you. It explains explains so much, but it's just so honest and transparent. I love you. So much about what? No. <laughs> no. I was hoping that you I just see that as a marvelous testimony to God's work in anybody's life. 
How many of us would love to have a sign just right in front of us? (laughs) I mean, that was like perfect. Share a little bit of how how you came from confused thought to... takes a miracle to change a person's life. Yep. It took a lot of work, too, like 30 years. From uh, confu- But that's what they say it takes to really get a person well who's kind of like me. It's been kind of fun watching Linda because... Sunday <laughs> was, uh, what's your favorite book of the Bible, Linda? No. Hey, Linda, this what? Linda, this favorite book of the Bible. What? Hey, Linda, this is... What? This is Jim. I, I just want to say that uh, my life has been enriched by knowing you ever since I first listened to some of your comments in uh, a Sunday school class when we first, Jody and I first came to Grace Church. So uh, huh. Thank you. God, God, God used you to enrich our lives. Thank I appreciate you, Jim. It. It's been fun to watch the transformation where... Some Sunday she'd come in and say, oh, now I'm a fundy. Another Sunday, <laughs> fundamental, fundamentalist. <laughs> I was at a party in San Diego, and this woman would say, oh, those fundamentalist Christians. They have this all this agenda to get everybody to believe what they're doing. And I said, I'm a fundamentalist Christian. And she said, what? I've never met one. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I mean, that's so funny. Uh, and then another Sunday, she'd come and say, "Oh, now I'm a preemie. Explain what a preemie is." Oh, pre-millennial. Pre-millennial. <laughs> what else did you become? Oh, you became a dispensationalist. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> the many hats of Linda Kaminsky Vick. <laughs> <laughs> Linda. Linda, I've heard your comments on Ray's recordings that I've listened to on his website. And so, you know, now joining this on Zoom and putting a face to your voice, um, it's just been so fun to um, just see you and meet you and um, just thank you for uh, blessing my life too. I just I love hearing your comments and questions and in raised classes and um, so thank you for sharing today. Well, thank you, Katie, very much. All right. And, yes. What were some of uh, the scriptures that helped you most in this <laughs> those times that you talk about? Any favorite? Oh no, I I never opened the Bible. Oh, no, after, after, once you opened your Bible. <laughs> okay, first, first Thessalonians 4.11. Um, mind your own business, work with your hands, lead a quiet life, which was kind of radical. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's, my, that's my verse, mind your own um, business. And what's your favorite number? 17. Okay. Good. Or did you mean numbers 22? <laughs> anyway. Any uh, last comments or additions? Thank you, Rabbi Ray. Uh, <laughs> thank you all. Bye, Ray. Thank you for everyone's prayers. God bless you. Have a great week. Happy birthday. Bye, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>
Bye, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> See you all. Bye. Thanks for sharing. Thanks, Ray. <laughs>